You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. We know that whales and other cetaceans, like dolphins, are very smart. We've observed their playful behavior, their reasoning and problem-solving skills, and their keen memories. But perhaps our greatest area of interest concerns their ability to communicate. We're trying to decode whale communication to find out not only what they're talking about in terms of semantics, but also how complex it is, trying to determine how much rule structure is involved in whale communication, and so what kinds of messages can they actually produce, and how complex can they be. And now, in what's been described as a breakthrough, a team of researchers claim they have had an extended conversation with a humpback whale. They'll describe their experience, what they said to the whale, and the evidence that the creature understood them, as we consider what their findings mean, not only for our communication with non-human animals, but with intelligent alien species off Earth. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, we consider the big picture of interspecies communication on this planet and beyond. This episode is Alien Says What? First, let's meet the three seafaring researchers who have a whale of a tail. Brenda McCowan, Fred Sharp, and Lawrence Doyle. My expertise in the group is on information theory. Um, The idea is to develop intelligence filters for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Brenda? Uh, I'm a professor at the University of California, Davis, in the School of Veterinary Medicine, and I have a background in biobehavioral complexity. I'm specifically interested in complex communication and social dynamics. And Fred? I'm a uh, behavioral ecologist working predominantly out of southeast Alaska. Yeah, so my contribution primarily is being in the field and having spent quite a few years out with, with these animals. In the summer of 2021, in the chilly waters of Alaska's Frederick Sound, these scientists from the SETI Institute, the University of California, Davis, and the Alaska Whale Foundation and their team guided a research vessel into an area that is a seasonal hotspot for humpback whales. They listened to the eerie calls of the animals, but this time responded to them using underwater speakers to play a series of previously recorded humpback vocalizations in the area. It was then that the researchers had a close encounter with, as they put it, a non-human aquatic intelligence, otherwise known as a whale. As their recorded calls reverberated through the water, a humpback whale named Twain approached their boat. Well, what happened next and the evidence that Twain was responding to the calls and not just passing by was published in a November 2023 issue of the journal Aquatic Biology. The researchers say their findings bear on our ability to communicate with whales and other non-human intelligence species on and off Earth. After all, what good does it do to make contact with an alien civilization, which after all is the goal of researchers involved with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, if we can't communicate with it? Now the researchers reassured us that they took great care not to disturb these animals whose ears are highly sensitive to sound and whose pods exhibit complex social behavior. Scientists conducted the experiment with a permit issued by NOAA National Marine Fisheries Research. 
What we did is we actually conducted a playback experiment with the humpbacks up in southeast Alaska. And in, in this particular playback, which the previous ones and, and even those afterwards that we tried were not very successful, we were very successful in playing back a call that was apparently somewhat salient to this animal since it was recorded in um, the day before with a group of animals in which she was uh, a part of. And uh, and we what was really interesting and unique about this particular interaction is that it was a, it was an exchange of these whoop calls or these contact calls, and we went back and forth with Twain thirty six times over a twenty minute period. And and give me some idea of what that sounds like if you could. I mean, obviously, you know, with your mouth or something like that, uh, because I'm interested to know exactly how complex such a call is. How many bits of information, if you will, could possibly be in that call? Well, I'm going to let Fred imitate the whoop since he's the expert of humpback whales. <laughs> you got to get that um, that bilabial fricative going, thrup, thrup, and this is a really basic call that the animals give in all of its various haunts around the planet. Humpbacks are one of the most widely distributed mammals on the planet. They are known to give these throp calls. It's part of their social call repertoire. Yeah, so this clip here is with a group that was cooperatively feeding and they were having a little trouble. And so this is a situation where you possibly might get some sort of information-based jabber going back and forth. And t take a listen to this, it's remarkable. And the animals just periodically will sound out this, these throp calls with other low-frequency sounds when they're swimming or feeding or diving or resting. We're not entirely sure what it means to them. It appears to function as proposed by Michel Fournay and others that it appears to be a contact call. So it seemed like a really good candidate, especially when the animals appear to be giving this when they're in relatively low states of arousal and it's just sort of conversational, almost like birds in a flock. And so it, um, yeah, it seemed like a good opener. But it, it sounds to me as if it's a, you know, heads up, I'm here, uh, I'm going to talk to you kind of thing. Is it like sending CQ for amateur radio operators, you know, hello, everybody kind of thing? I think they're saying accept all cookies. It, um, <laughs> yeah, so, um, but that, that's the fun part about it, right, is that's how you infer meaning ultimately is first to be a good observers and see the behavioral context with which their vocalizations occur in and then you can start to test these ideas with these playback studies uh, these are all um, sanctioned these are all uh, under federal permit through our NOAA research permit and the the idea is is to play back these sounds and we make predictions about the behavioral response we assume that if these are operating, these thrup calls are operating as a contact call, that we would expect the animals to perhaps call back, mirror back. And that's why it got so exciting with Twain is that, um, yeah, she definitely hung around and um, uh, confabulated. Okay, well, but, but let me ask uh, maybe you, Brenda. I, I can imagine recording my dog barking, right? And then, you know, just playing that back a day later or something like that. And I'm sure that would get a response from my dog because, you know, the dog thinks there's another dog or, or, or something. What have you communicated by playing this recording? Well, we're not entirely sure what we communicated. As we think it is a contact call. And, um, and so it may have been sort of like a hello back and forth. But what made this, I think, really interesting, and, and again, Fred can elaborate on this too, having known humpback whales for decades, is that you know this animal stuck around, it actually swam around our boat for 20 minutes and did an exchange with us that uh, showed a match in latency between us calling and her calling. Um, and it suggested to us that she was very much engaged in this interaction. I mean, when we call it a conversation, we put that in quotes, we recognize how preliminary this is, but it also speaks to the issue of well, if we really want to engage with these animals, we should start t trying to do playback experiments that are more adaptive and dynamic, uh, such that we can then see how they respond in different ways to the way we change the calls that we actually record and play back. So that's so, what was exciting about this particular encounter and having this, ex this long exchange with her. So you're trying to advance from, uh, if you will, a call and response kind of model to something where you're 
kind of carrying on a conversation. That would be the ultimate goal, is to be able to use these kinds of systems to not only decipher what they're communicating about so that we actually know what we are conversing, um, but, but then also to establish a conversation once we are able to do that. Lawrence, you've uh, spent a lot of time in this area trying to understand language of animals and you know the motivation at least what you've said in the past i believe is that this might help us you know communicate with extraterrestrials if we get to that stage if we got them on the line so to speak can you give me an example of the kind of information that's conveyed in these uh, these experiments that brenda and fred are doing yes um we first uh, did some work with bottlenose dolphins and you can do tests, for example, there's something called Ziff's Law, Z-I-P-F. And Ziff's Law, basically, if you count the frequency of occurrence of words or of letters, and you plot them on a logarithmic scale, then you get a 45 degree minus one slope when you draw a line through the frequency of occurrence in rank order, in the order that they occur first, second, third, and so on. And this is an example uh, that linguists had previously said distinguishes human communication systems from animal communication systems. And at the time, Brenda and I had to inform the gentleman that, that had written this up that bottlenose dolphins obey this law. So in other words, and you say, well, what about um, ground squirrels? Well, ground squirrels probably don't obey this law. So in other words... It's an indication of potential for communication system that's as complex as human language. That's an example of a first look intelligence filter that we would apply to any extraterrestrial signals coming in. Okay, so that, that sounds to me as if what you're doing is saying, look, if, it, if it's just a monosyllabic response, boo, or bark, or something like that, okay, that's, that's one data point. But if they have two uh, syllables, you know, then suddenly that sounds a little bit more complex. And if they have three or four, it really is complex. And presumably, they're not making it complex just for the benefit of the researchers who's recording this, but that means that there's more information being conveyed, right? Yeah, it says basically if, if the signals obey this law, then they could have complex rule structure. In other words, conditional probabilities between signals. And that indicates, uh, you know... Uh, syntax, as we call it in human communication systems. So we can actually measure in bits the syntactical complexity or the rule structure within a communication system to see what its carrying capacity is. And that's what we would do with any extraterrestrial signals that come in. We could indicate, for example, in English, if you have a copy machine that's low on toner, you can recover words by looking at context, and context means conditional probabilities between signals. And then if you're missing two words, then you could still recover, but it isn't as easy as if you're only missing one word. If you're missing nine words, there's still conditional probability between words in English. But if you're missing 10 words, you might as well go grab a word from the dictionary because there's no longer conditional dependencies. In other words, there's no longer rule context. So how many rules is there in a communication system? Well, uh, we could measure that and say, oh, well, there's error recovery is a, has survival value too. So we expect animals that are capable of it to develop error recovery by imparting rules into their communication system. If we get an extraterrestrial signal and it's not ninth order like humans, but it's 20th order, even without translation, we can tell the extraterrestrials have you know, twice the complexity that humans do in their communication system. Yeah. We can measure that right away. Okay, but that that, that would be, <laughs> I, I think that might be a little bit depressing. I'm not sure that's the right adjective, but I, I'd, <laughs> I'd be a little concerned if they're, you know, they have uh, such complexity in their, in their language, if you will, that it dwarfs uh, the complexity of our own language. But it would be good to know ahead of time, wouldn't you think? Yeah, oh, of course, of course particularly if they're in a rocket. Okay, well, let's go back to Brenda and tell us a little bit about the test subject here with the name Twain. I mean, the first question I'd ask is, you know, how did Twain get that, that name? But also, you know, what, what kind of uh, a, a whale was this? You know, and where was this whale? Was it out in the ocean? Was it in a pool somewhere? Well, again, I'm going to defer to Fred on this one because 
Fred was actually responsible for naming Twain Twain. Yeah, with um, we've got what now probably um, 1,200 animals in our local database. So we were getting a little desperate for names. And I turned to my mother. She has gone to the great bubble net in the sky, but she lives on through, through her lovely Appalachians, uh, Twain being one of those. She was an English, English literature major and uh, in, in honor of Samuel Clemens. Yeah, I, I think he got that, that word actually from uh, his experience on riverboats on the Mississippi, right? They would mark the depth of the river. Uh, Mark Twain would be, you know, some indication of the depth at that point. Am I wrong? Perfecta mundo, yeah, that's how it worked. And, and what's really cool is that uh, um, through the efforts of many research teams and citizen scientists around the North Pacific, it is believed now that we have like 99% of the whales are now photo ID'd in a matching program called Happy Whale. Check it out happywell.com. The innovator is Ted Cheeseman and his colleagues, and they have gotten us all together. So it is this fabulous database now where you can go in and at, at your fingertips have the sighting histories of these individual whales. And from that amazing database, we could see that Twain is predominantly, she predominantly goes to Maui in the winter, can't blame her. And um, we could see that she's a, a distinguished animal that is, uh, we believe, nearly four decades old. Did you have to uh, give yourself some help on identifying these whales? I mean, you know, did you, as is sometimes done, use some sort of, I don't know, paint or dye or something to put a mark on their back so you know, oh, that's Twain and that's Rodney and so forth and so on? Or could you tell just from the vocalizations? Humpbacks are wonderful in that they have a ginormous tail. Their their tail stock, their their hind flipper, their um, enormous flukes. Every time they dive, when they're sounding going deep, usually at the end of five or six breaths, they'll arch their magnificent tails up into the air and then dive vertically straight down. That allows us to peek at the underside of their tails, which is fantastic. They have these very diverse sets of pigmentation, scars and scratches on there. It's almost like a Rorschach blot. And that's where we come up with our best names. Whatever whatever triggers your, your, your thought first, that name sticks. And being able to identify individuals in the field without having to engage in any sort of invasive marking is extremely helpful. Just by these recitings, we can learn all, all kinds of things, like you know, obviously how big the population is and where the animals go uh, in the breeding season. These are some of the longest migrating animals in the world. And when they disappear, they can be pan-oceanic. So being able to track them across time and space is really important. Um, The work that we love to do is associated with their social biology, so we like to see who they're running with, who their running buddies are. We can learn lots then about um, do they form into kin-based groups or are these uh, teams of running buddies? Uh, We can also learn see the moms and the calves and pick up lineages and generations, so having the ability to fingerprint them in the field non-invasively is extremely important for our work. We should mention, too, that if you get a picture of a tail fluke, you can send it into Happy Well, and they'll tell you who it is. If it's somebody that hasn't made it to Happy Well yet, congratulations, you're in the top 1% of discoveries. Would those be happier whales, Lawrence? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All our whales are happy. Next, more about what it's like, oh, you know, chatting with a whale and what it means for possible communication with non-human intelligence off-planet. This episode is Alien Says What? on Big Picture Science. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired, wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to whales isn't easy, but we're about to hear how some researchers went about it. 
But first, we want to talk to you about how you can support big picture science. Don't worry, you don't need a degree in linguistics or a hydrophone. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. And once you sign up, you'll get early access to ad-free versions of every episode. Your monthly donation can be as little as you like, but the more you give, the more you get. In fact, for only $5 a month, you get access to Patreon-exclusive bonus material, which includes discussions about such things as gravitational waves, food allergies, the James Webb Space Telescope, and more. And every little bit helps Big Picture Science production so we can work on future episodes about prehistoric tools, coffee, my favorite, asteroids. Well, the list is endless with your support. So join us. It's easy, quick, and a great way for you to help bolster science literacy. All you have to do is head over to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thanks for your support. Thank you. We continue our conversation with whale and animal researchers Brenda McCowan, Fred Sharp, and Lawrence Doyle about their remarkable encounter with a humpback whale named Twain and how their success in communicating with her could teach us how to talk to aliens. Their research was published at the end of 2023 in the journal Aquatic Biology. This clip is a sample of the exchange that um, we had with Twain in 2021 in Southeast Alaska. Why we believe this encounter was groundbreaking is just put yourself back in the context. You, know, you mentioned, Seth, about playing a recording to your dog. Well, think back before dogs were domesticated, and this is one of the first interactions as cave people around the fire, and you're starting this dialogue with a wild animal. And that's kind of where we are with these humpbacks. Um, these animals are not food motivated. They're free living. There's no domestication. There's no captive training or food enticement. This was an animal that is extremely mobile and agile and could leave a conversation like this anytime they like. And as far as we know, this is probably the most um, continuing elaborate exchange, certainly with the humpback whale, probably with any baleen whale. Um, there have been a number of other playback studies that have been done with, with humpbacks and other species of whales, but none of them appear to have resulted in this sort of sustained interaction like this. What's the evolutionary advantage to them for being able to do this? It's not talking to researchers, presumably. Well, what's so exciting about it is, is that through the laws of cosmic plurality and the inevitability of complex life that we so appreciate and desire as SETI advocates is that we expect aliens to be curious and we also expect complex civilizations that have independently evolved in the oceans to also exhibit some level of curiosity. And that's what we're finding. And there's, there's a lot of friendly interactions that go on now between humpback whales. They have wonderfully recovered over most of the world's oceans. Uh, 10 of their 14 distinct population segments have been delisted. And just the surface area now for this type of interaction has really increased. And these are really wonderful because the, our relationship to these beings is changing from one of intense consumption and hunting and destruction of their, of their populations and of their societies. And now that they're recovering quite nicely, it just really speaks to their incredible survival intelligence. And it also means that we've learned something too. And so this is groundbreaking because this is just the beginning, I think, of what's possible with these beings. I mean, think of Cro-Magnons coming um, into Europe around, what, 30, 40,000 years ago, and that we thought that we were, we believe that for the last 100,000 years, we've been anatomically and cognitively as we are now, but something happened where a lot of unused cognitive capacity was suddenly art and flutes and bone whistles and grave goods, and we think the humpback probably has got a lot of unplumbed potential, and so it's experiments like this that are opening up the door for, um, we think, an amazing future. And they also, it answers an important SETI question, which is, uh, you know, detecting leaks. Uh, we have, we don't have that much range, few light years. 
but if an ET signal is from a curious extraterrestrial species, then uh, they'd be pointing at us. And this encounter with Twain illustrates a, uh, that intelligence probably comes with curiosity built in. And so we can actually indicate whether SETI will be receiving targeted signals by studying uh, the reaction animals have to our attempt to communicate with them. Brenda, let me get you in on this conversation a little bit more. Uh, do the vocalizations that you're hearing from these whales display, I mean, do they display real curiosity? Are they really trying to ask questions of the human? Well, we're not entirely sure of that. Again, we haven't decoded their communication system. But one thing that we really should point out about humpback whales is the diversity of vocalizations they produce. I always describe humpback whale vocal communication as being like the animal that produces every other sound on the face of the planet. It's unbelievable the diversity of, of, of the vocalizations that they produce and the range that they produce them in. And so it, it suggests to me that there's probably something very important going on there. It's probably more complex than we know yet, more complex than just song. And their social sounds, like the ones that we, we started working with playing back, um, are a very interesting area of study to help us better understand what they're communicating about. Brenda, I have to say that for a couple of months in my distant past, I had to babysit a friend's parrot. And parrots were pretty good at speaking to you. But it wasn't ever clear to me that they really were speaking to me in the sense that they were asking me a question or they were commenting on the furniture or whatever. They were just making these noises that were, you know, pretty good replicas of what a human voice would be. How is it with these, with these whales? I mean, are they, are they good mimics? Can they do that? Are they just producing sounds? Or, you know, do they understand context? Well, I'm certain that the, the, they understand context with respect to their own communication systems. Are they trying to mimic humans? Um, again, I would defer to Fred to, to know whether or not that's something that he's seen in his 40 years. Do I think that they have the c- capability to modify their vocalizations in response to something that we do? I really do think so, but that's something we need to test. And that's where we're really headed in our future directions, is to begin to modify these signals in real time and see how the whales respond both behaviorally and vocally. Fred, maybe you could expand a little bit on what Brenda just said. How will you do these tests? I mean, you know, are you doing them in the wild from a boat on the ocean, or you got them in a pool, or exactly how do you do the experiment? Well, these um, gargantuans, they're they're awesome that way in that you're never going to wrestle one and get it into a a dolphinarium or any captive setting. And so, uh, again, it's like the experiments that are conducted are are volitional and the whales are have to be a willing participant or they can completely disappear and it, it's by doing the playbacks it's us mimicking them which is cool we're, we're selecting sounds from their repertoire and ones that we believe are you know context specific um, to these kind of initial dialogues and um, by getting into one of these dynamic playbacks, uh, there's some papers by King and colleagues that are really awesome that, that discuss this, that there's a ton you can learn once you get into a quote-unquote conversational type style, and that is the ability to change parameters of your outgoing signals allows the recipient to change theirs to suit. That is when you really get into how closely things are tracking. And as you make minor changes, you can see if the animal picks up on that, you're starting to get insight into their sensory resolution and also their ability to, to craft outgoing signals. So it's, um, it's a really exciting area of research, and we think we've you know, made the first steps. And probably, probably the most um, enviable, I mean, it's really cool because it's, it's very much like, the, the, like these um, post-contact teams, like what do we do now, right? And so when you start to get the conversation going, we're kind of at that that really cool step. And it's like, um, we've also got a very, very interesting study that we've just completed and um, we hope to be published in soon in the peer-reviewed literature. And that is the humpback whales producing these crazy uh, bubble structures. You know, we know they do a lot of bubble nets and for, for um, capturing their prey, these sophisticated spirals, traps, and they also do bubbles when they're breeding for sexual enticements and uh, for the males when they're competing. And bubbles are fascinating because they're a form of, of communication that we don't have as terrestrial beings. It's like, it's, it's unique and so it's great for the SETI in the context in that we kind of when Lawrence and Brenda first approached 15 years ago and said, hey, let's work together. It's like, we know these whales have got some crazy things going on that are kind of new forms of communication. And 
bubbles can are extremely dynamic. They can be spun into all kinds of interesting structures. And so there could be a lot of information embedded there. Okay, well, let, let, let me have Lawrence elaborate on that, because Lawrence, when I think of a bubble net, that, that's just the animal producing a series of bubbles uh, that float up to the surface of the, the ocean. And it's hard for me to see how that mode of communication could possibly carry very many bits, if you will. I mean, that, that whale is going to have a hard time elaborating on, I don't know, the philosophy of Schopenhauer or anything like that with that kind of a communication mode. So what sort of things are they actually saying, Lawrence? Well, in the case of bubble netting, uh, what they're doing is creating a cylinder of bubbles that the other members of the team, the, the hunting team, drive into this cylinder of bubbles, and then they get underneath, they make a loud noise, and they come up with their mouths open. And it's a way of catching herring, which are pretty quick. So they actually make these nets of bubbles, and they make the bubbles big enough so the herring will not break through the wall of the bubble net, and they come up with their mouths open. And so it's really a hunting strategy. And I have given some thought to assigning bits to the structure. Everything has to go just right. Every now and then a bubble net fails, and then you hear everybody blaming everybody else. Frankly, it's pretty <laughs> obvious. Uh, I was there, where were you? It was all this social chatter after a failed bubble net, and sometimes one of the humpbacks gets pushed out of the bubble netters guild, you might call it, and they have to go eat krill. Of the vast lexicon that the humpbacks produce, very few of them have been deciphered down to single words. I would say the one that we're quite clear we know what it is, is when they're bubble net feeding and they give these very loud trumpet-like calls. We believe those are interspecies fear beacons that are directed at the herring to change the geometry and flight behavior of the school, making them easier to capture. But um, what Fred's talking about is that in this paper is uh, kind of a, basically a bubble ring. And the uh, humpback whales make rings apparently for people. There may be a few instances where they produced a ring having to do with bubble netting. But most of the instances, it looks like, well, the hypothesis is that it is an invitation to play. So here's this ring coming up, and then a humpback whale sticks his head through it. And the crowd's going nuts in these whale-watching trips where the humpback whales do this. And um, it looks like, it's definitely, it looks like an invitation to kind of communicate. And in some sense, I mean, the twain encounter was like Star Trek Four, And in this case, a ring communication is more like the arrival. So we're kind of, once again, science fiction becomes science. Well, uh, in the sense, uh, not everybody has seen the arrival. Uh, you know, what sort of information is being conveyed? Well, it looks to me, and I'm not a biologist, so I get to express my opinion without prejudice of knowledge, but it looks to me like it is uh, that the production of bubble rings in front of humans could very well be an invitation to play. And it makes people yell and scream and take pictures and... Uh, you know, one could not be blamed for assuming that that's amusing to the humpback whale. Something that uh, occurs to me here, Lawrence, is that, look, whales can make sounds, right? They, they can do that. Uh, you can buy records of whale sounds if that helps you fall asleep at night. But given that they can vocalize, and particularly given the fact that underwater, low-frequency sound uh, travels pretty, pretty well, I mean, it, it can be used... Why do they resort to bubbles? Because you have to see the bubbles, and it doesn't seem to me you can make very complex sentences only using bubbles. Well, I don't think it's a communication system. Uh, I think it's just a contact bubble. You make a bubble ring, and it shows that you're intelligent enough to make a bubble ring. If, if I was going to study bubble rings in the context of information theory, I would look at the physics of bubble rings and what it takes to make one. And there's a constrained uh, parameter space you have to inject the right velocity of air and so on so it's uh it's possible to kind of indicate a thought through technical expertise to make a bubble a bubble ring so yeah. in some sense i'm still kind of trying to figure out polar coordinates toroidal coordinate systems yeah. and so on but i'm still trying to kind of wade through what it would take to make a bubble ring because it isn't automatic 
you have to inject the right velocity and so on. So as a communication system, I think it would just be kind of like a visual greeting. But like Fred mentioned, it isn't something we know how to do, except people that can blow, blow smoke rings and are all very amused. But humpback whales, uh, bubbles are a major tool. Just to add on that, it's like um, it shows the sophistication of the whale in that the surface layer is an incredible impediment to um, trans-species communication. It's like air, water does, sounds underwater do not propagate into the air. and and um, But our sounds are constantly bombarding them because we live in boats and we're giving the most incredible malaise of trashy industrial ship and boat noise and seismic exploration and military, you know, shock tests. And it's like, so the fact that the whale knows that a visual signal is going to get our attention uh, better than a um, than an acoustic one, I think shows some sophistication. And these bubble rings, yeah. they're beautiful. They're like giant smoke rings. They're extremely rapidly spinning, uh, very rapid poiloidal. Um, some of them are giant up to like three or four meters across. And they are very stunning structures. And we don't have the technology yet to create those. There's, there's a ton of literature, of the theory on the vortex formations of poloidal structures, but nothing to the extent. So in some ways, we're, we have to use technology to catch up to something that they're doing uh, that's very amazing that they do organically. More whale tales coming up. This episode is Alien Says What? on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Our conversation continues with researchers Brenda McCowan, Fred Sharp, and Lawrence Doyle about their remarkable encounter with a humpback whale named Twain. Brenda, can you give us some idea of what a conversation with a whale might be like? Tell us, you know, what information is going back and forth, and is it really going back and forth? Are the whales aware that they're communicating with humans? Uh, I think it's a very good question. I mean, one of the interaction with Twain suggests to me that she probably knew she was not communicating with another whale because she was circling the boat very closely. They know what boats are, um, and she did not would have not seen another whale in the vicinity, uh, but she still continued to exchange. So it's very hard to know what she knew, but it was also very clear that we weren't a whale. So whether or not they're purposely communicating with humans, I mean, I think Fred's um, discov- the discovery of Fred and, and Jody Fridiani and others of looking at uh, bubble rings suggests that they you know, do this in front of boats and, um, and maybe not exclusively, but predominantly suggests that again, that they are doing something, something intentional to, to communicate with people. Maybe it's just a, a signal of play. And, and I suspect that the whales you know, amongst themselves are talking about where to find fish or you know, how much farther is it to Hawaii? Um, and, and the kinds of things that we would communicate about um, in terms of just our you know, everyday social interactions uh, and our goals. All right, so when you say, well, they might be communicating uh, something like, well, how much farther is it to Hawaii? That sounds like a complex communication to me. And not so much the answer, you know, they say, well, it's only another 800 miles on the left or whatever, but the fact that they can ask that question, that strikes me as complex. Is it? That's what we're aiming to find out. We're trying to find out what the whales are actually, we're trying to decode whale communication to find out not only what they're talking about in terms of, you know, semantics 
and the context in which they uh, produce these sounds, uh, but also how complex it is. What Lawrence was saying earlier about using information theory, trying to determine how much rule structure is involved in whale communication, and so what kinds of messages can they actually produce, and how complex can they be? Um, and we're actually interested in other species too. Humpback whales are a good first choice because of the diversity of their vocalizations, because of the complexity of their social behavior, because of the types of collaborative interactions that they do, like, such as bubble net feeding. But there are other uh, diverse intelligences on the planet, and I think um, we'll need to explore those as well to practice for something in the future if some, th- some signals should come in from, from outer space. Well, uh, Lawrence, I mean, these kinds of experiments have been done in the past with our supposedly close relatives, you know, the simians, apes, and monkeys, and so forth, and uh, they seem to be pretty good at using vocal communications. Can you give me some idea how the whales uh, stack up against (laughs) against the apes? Uh, Yeah, we have thought about primates, but we'd have to take into account facial and gestural communication as well. The thing about marine mammals and humpbacks in particular is a larger part, the largest part of their communication is audio, which we can work with directly. In other words, we're getting the whole, almost the whole intelligence uh, measurement by recording instead of having to also take video. And your tests are, you know, essentially counting syllables and stuff like that to get some idea of the complexity of the communication, it doesn't mean you understand them necessarily. Well, you understand and can measure, definitely measure their carrying capacity of their communication system. So you don't answer the question, what are they saying, as a first step. You answer the question, what could they say? In other words, will uh, Moby Dick ever be translatable into humpback whale? Yeah. In some sense, that's something that information theory could measure. You could say, will Moby Dick ever be translated into ground squirrels? Well, probably not. The ground squirrel may not have the carrying capacity uh, to have the you know relationship between signals that Moby Dick has. But humpback whale, we don't know yet. I, you know, as I say, my next door neighbor had a parrot, and that parrot was pretty good at mimicking you know human speech. In fact, it was often eerie to hear a voice coming from the next room because he didn't think anybody was in the next room that sounded very much like your buddy Bob, right? They, they could imitate the inflection or whatever of a particular speaker. Are there, I mean, in the case of the parrots, I don't imagine that they're really saying very much, but the whales might be. Are they doing better than the parrots, for example? Well, that's hard to measure. I know that Irene Pepperberg did experiments with Alex, the great African parrot, and Alex certainly understood counting up to a few, and object recognition to the point of distinguishing even the colors of objects, and you could say, Alex, fly in the next room and get the green key, and Alex would go into a room of lots of things, hundreds of things, and pick out the green key, and say green key when when he got back. (laughs) So, in particular, parrots um, are very impressive in their communication systems. Um, uh, humpback whales are not domesticated, and they're participating because they want to. And they took turns, as conversational, uh, you know, conversations do. And um, they were matching our timing. So, given one word in humpback, I thought we did a really good job of interchanging with. Uh, the humpback and the humpback definitely showing interest while circling the boat. These guys weigh 50 tons, and if they're interested, they'll come and communicate with you. But if they're not, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> okay, heavy conversationalist. Brenda, you know, in fiction, there are lots of stories about talking to animals, right? But, uh, you know, on the basis of your research, you have a much better idea about whether that could ever be possible. I mean, I can imagine you could elaborate the kinds of things you're doing by bringing computers into the loop or whatever. But are we ever really going to be able to talk to the animals? Well, I think with the with the current technologies that are emerging, we are at our 
the best place to start to really answer that question with uh, AI, with these playback studies, with other machine learning tools. Uh, I think that we may be able to, and of course getting lots of data from the animals themselves, we may be able to begin to find patterns in their communication system that we have not been able to find before. And that might give us great insight into what the animals are, are actually saying. So uh, I'm, 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 I can't answer that question, but I can, I can certainly say we've never been in a better place. So it's possible. I mean, it, it, it doesn't sound like it's any easier although you would expect it would be, then, you know, getting a computer to understand, you know, my next door neighbor. I mean, they know all the words, but that doesn't mean they understand context and stuff like that. Presumably, you have the same problems if you're talking to a whale. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, AI, you know, AI is not going to solve the problem in terms of translating animal communication, but it certainly is a tool that can help us. You're right. Um, co- the context in which these signals are used, the the semantics behind these signals also have to be pursued. And so that's the playback studies can help with that. Um, Massive amounts of data looking at, at behavioral context can help with that. And that's the, kind, that's the kind of research that people are really pursuing on a much grander scale than previously. Fred, do you have something to add to that? Yeah, I think um, we might be at the stage where we're saying, Matthews, we're getting another one of those funny abla espanol sounds. Um, and almost as importantly as um, understanding exactly what they're saying is, just animals knowing that they've been heard is important, right? Um, because, you know, look at the power asymmetries that have existed between us and these animals since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. There was probably fantastic uh, uh, pre-contact indigenous interactions with these animals that we probably had very elaborate and all kinds of amazing uh, with spiritualities and connections that we can only dream of nowadays, right? So much, some of that still goes on, of course, but by and large, we're kind of starting from scratch again because so much has been washed away. And just to no longer be constantly bombarding them with our, our machinery noise and our engine noise and our ships and our industry and to actually be making some steps to try to like let them know that they've been heard, I think is huge. And um, I think the, um, yeah, I think the future is very bright. And I think um, we've barely begun to plumb the depths of these amazing beings. Brenda, what about you? Do you ever, you know, come home at night and all smiles <laughs> saying, you know, I talked to this critter uh, today and, you know, the critter really understood me and I understood it. I mean, it, 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 do you see progress in this that's, you know, maybe leading to this scenario that uh, Fred just sort of outlined that we really can talk to the other inhabitants of planet Earth? I, I do think that there's great potential for that to occur. And I want to reiterate what Fred said. I mean, part of the reason why this work and other people's work in this area is so important is to regain an appreciation for the other species, non-humans on this planet. I think it's a really important message, a conservation message, a message that we are not alone on this planet is a really important one. Um, and so I do hope that we're successful. It will take time and a lot of effort, but I do hope we're successful and at least beginning to understand what, the, what animals are communicating about and the, dif- and the diversity of intelligences that we have on this particular planet. Brenda McCowan, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure to be on this program with you. Fred Sharp of the Whale SETI research team. Fred, thank you. Hey, you bet. Throp, throp, Seth. Nothing further as you were. <laughs> All right. Well, Lawrence, thanks so very much for joining in on this. And I have to say, all your vocalizations were comprehensible. Oh, thanks so much. Well, it was a lot of fun, and I'm sorry I couldn't blow bubbles, but I'll try better next time. (laughs) Brenda McCown is a researcher at the University of California, Davis, in the School of Veterinary Medicine. Fred Sharp is a whale biologist and behavioral ecologist at Simon Fraser University and a member of the Templeton Whale SETI team. And Lawrence Doyle is an astrophysicist and information theory researcher at the SETI Institute. Well, this brings us to the big picture of this show, and we'd like to bring in our assistant producer, Shannon Geary, in this discussion because she worked closely with us on this episode. Um, Shannon, some big picture thoughts from you about whales communicating with whales and or aliens. 
I think my biggest takeaway from the show was, you know, this question that we ask at SETI, are we alone in the universe? It can be a pretty lonely question, you know, thinking about humans as potentially being the only intelligent species floating on a rock in the middle of a a vast void of space. I feel like learning about this whale communication, it made me feel like, well, even if you ignore the question of are we alone in the universe, at the very least, we're not alone here on Earth. We're surrounded by all these other species that have their own forms of communication, their own forms of intelligence. Seth, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the question of whether you could ever understand an alien communication that we might in the future pick up, it depends on, you know, how would you understand it? How would you go about doing that? We already have statistical tests that uh, Lawrence Doyle talked about that could ascertain that what you're hearing is actually a language as opposed to some sort of, you know, natural phenomenon that repeats or whatever. But that doesn't mean you understand it, even if you know it's a language. And that's a hard, harder thing to do. Um, you know, uh, I've suggested, other people have suggested that we just encourage the aliens to send a picture dictionary, right? And, you know, a picture of a star or a planet or whatever, and then put their word for it next to that. And they might be able to teach us enough of their language that we could understand their conversation. Seems like if the aliens really want us to succeed, they'd send us a sort of uh, extraterrestrial Rosetta Stone, which is kind of what it sounds like Lawrence and Brenda and Fred were talking about with the uh, whale communication, too. They're trying to determine, you know, a single sound to equate to, uh, you know, a single piece of communication. And that can kind of help you unravel the rest of their communication. Well, Seth, um, could you imagine that the aliens might sound the way that whales sound to us? Well, if, if they evolved in water, yes. You know, there are certain frequencies and time scales that travel much better underwater than others. So the fact that they sound the way they do, uh, you know, it isn't something that they may have chosen. It's just the kind of communication that actually would work for them. But doesn't that raise the question of whether or not we would be able to pick up those communications? So there could be alien whales, <laughs> but they would need to build a transmitter, right, for us <laughs> to be able to hear their conversations. Yeah, well, that's a problem for them because uh, we're talking radio transmitters. And, you know, uh, radio waves don't do very well if, you're under, if your antenna is underwater, particularly in seawater. So that's a different thing. But that, that, that's just a question of, well, will there be any aliens that are up on land somewhere so that they could build some technology we could actually tune in. But the question of whether you understand them eventually or not, that's a very interesting question. And that uh, depends on how they encode any information because they're not going to broadcast an empty message into space. They're not going to just broadcast some sort of sound or noise. Like the equivalent of testing, testing, is this mic on? Testing, they probably won't do that. Well, uh, they, I, don't, I don't know, but if they do, I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> this show would not be possible without the whale-sized talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. And a special thanks to the humpback whale Twain for inspiring this conversation. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Special thanks to a few of our Patreon supporters, Ken and Joan Claiborne, Elkhart, Indiana. Bob from Brewster, New York, not too far from Carmel. And Brandon Mercer from San Francisco. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science about communication with non-human intelligence on and off Earth is called Alien Says What? <laughs>